For our sermon text this morning, I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and this morning we will be looking at verses 29 through 37 as we continue in our series on the parables of Jesus. We come to another parable this morning, having camped out some in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, This morning we will now take a look at a parable from the gospel according to Luke. Verses 29 through 37. However, I will begin reading in verse 25 just so that we know the context in which the parable is spoken. Hear now God's holy word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let us pray. O Lord, we ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts to receive your word, that your word would have its perfect working in us to sanctify us, to make us more Christ-like, to conform us to his image, and to work more of our ungodly worldliness, lusts, and desires out of us as the battle rages on between the spirit and the flesh. O Lord, strengthen our spirit and weaken our flesh. Through Christ our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen. In our culture today, we easily divide into camps. And the rhetoric that comes out is that the other camp is the enemy. With the racial divide today, people are being taught that white people are the enemy. And historically, there have been white people who have taught and been taught that black people are the enemy, or at least less than human. 
With the battle of the sexes, feminism teaches that men are the enemy. Those who are poor are taught that the wealthy are the enemy. From a military perspective, we as Americans have been trained to see Iran and, and North Korea and Russia and other countries as our enemy. And the idea is that when we are trained to see others as the enemy, we begin to foster hatred and animosity towards them, and any idea of love or compassion is eliminated. Professor Craig Blomberg tells the story about a church where he was once a member. A member of that church's missions committee was able to block the church from giving money to a Christian organization that had found ways to provide humanitarian aid directly to the impoverished people of North Korea as they were under the rule of a brutal dictator and still are to this day. This church member argued that under no circumstances should the church be helping people in nations that were our military enemy. Perhaps you and I have had similar thoughts, not regarding people in far away places, but people in our own backyard. Well, this morning in our parable, Jesus confronts such thinking that we are prone to have. And so to start with, in verses 29 through 32, we see that excuses often get in the way of demonstrating God's compassion for people. Excuses often get in the way of demonstrating God's compassion for people. So Jesus tells this story to a lawyer who's seeking to, to justify himself and has asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this parable. Now, uh, this parable takes place along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and that road descends about 33,000 feet in about a, a span of 17 miles. It's a, a pretty rapid descent, and it goes through rugged desert and wilderness. It was an extremely dangerous road uh, in Jesus' day, as robbers regularly hid along the sides and the crevices of the road or, or high up in the hills. And they took advantage of those who were traveling by themselves uh, who were not a part of a larger group or a caravan. That's what we see here in verse 30. This man who has been traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's an Israelite, he's a, he's a Jew. He's been taken advantage of by robbers. He's been overcome by them. And all that was on him is gone, and he, they've beaten him within an inch of his life. Now, in Jesus' day, the priests and the Levites would serve for about a month in the temple in Jerusalem, and then they would return to their home, and a great majority of priests and Levites lived in the city of Jericho, so they would pass along this road. So first, a priest coming from his temple service is traveling back home, and he sees the half-dead man in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He goes to the other side of the road and continues his journey on to Jericho. Now, the text does not tell us what the priest thinks to himself, but several uh, believable suggestions have been made. One, perhaps the priest is in a hurry to get home because he himself is traveling alone. And here is an example of what happens if you travel on this road by yourself. 
And he knows how dangerous the road is, so he justifies not helping this poor man out of fear of safety for his own life. Another possibility is that this priest, having just come from his temple service, is in a state of cleanliness, ritual purity. The Old Testament makes it clear that touching a dead body makes one unclean. And so the priest does not want to make himself unclean and have to go through that time-consuming process of making himself ritually clean again, which would take about a week. He has things to take care of at home. I've been away from home serving in the temple. I need to go back and take care of my animals. I need to go back and take care of my family. I need to go back and take care of my garden. I don't have a week to lose. And so I'm not going to defile myself by touching this man who is most likely dead or going to die. A third possibility is that according to Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, the priests could only make themselves unclean for the dead bodies of their closest relatives. This man is not a close relative of mine, therefore the priest justifies his inaction and lack of compassion based on Levitical regulations. Perhaps all three of these excuses are working together in the mind of the priest. Nevertheless, he has at his disposal a safety excuse, an efficiency excuse. It's going to take up some time that I don't have, and a religious excuse. Safety, efficiency, religious. A second person happens to come along in verse 32, and this time it's a, it's a Levite, somebody who's a, of the tribe of Levi, but not a part of Aaron's family. So he's not a priest, more like a, a priest's assistant, if you will, who had charge of lesser duties in the temple of God. And the wording of verse 32 indicates that the Levite stops and, and takes a closer look at the man. He looks more closely than the priest did. Perhaps the priest looks at, sees something far down the road, recognizes that it's a human person who's been beaten and robbed, and he passes by. But the Levite's willing to come closer to actually investigate the scene, and he looks and gazes at this man. But then he continues on his journey and leaves the half-dead man lying there. Again, the same triad of possible excuses for the priest are also at play for the Levite. He too is traveling by himself, so he fears for his own life. He too has been ritually clean to serve in the temple. He too is trying to get home. He too does not want to defile himself for somebody who's not a close relative. Frequently with Jesus's interactions with the Jewish leaders of his day, Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the religious leaders because they exhibited a concern more for Old Testament regulations than they did for people. Oftentimes, they were more concerned with being right and winning a debate or winning an argument than they were about people. The Pharisees, for example, were more concerned about Sabbath observance than Jesus healing the lame man on the Sabbath. He condemned them for their, their practice of Corban, where they were supposed to take care of their parents in their old age, but to get out of it, they said, what was supposed to be used for your care is Corban, that is, devoted to God, and so I can't use it 
to take care of you because I've devoted it to God. And therefore, they found legalistic loopholes and ways to get around. And Jesus says, you nullify the commands of God with your man-made traditions. And using these two supposed exemplary people, using the categories from the Old Testament, priest and Levite, Jesus is condemning the official Judaism of his day. These religious people had two attempts to respond to the situation, and they did not. Their excuses got in the way of demonstrating compassion for a person in need. Which begs the question for us. How often do we make excuses to justify ourselves not helping others in times of need? It's a legitimate question from Scripture. Additionally, in verses 33 through 35, our second point, we see that we are called to show compassion to anyone in need, regardless of barriers that divide us. We are called to show compassion to anyone in need, regardless of barriers that divide us. Now, in typical storytelling fashion of Jesus' day, the third character in the story would be an ordinary Israelite. It was common for the people to tell stories that were anti-clergy, so to speak, uh, and so they would paint the ordinary average Israelite citizen as the hero, sort of like those um, uh, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi walks into a bar type jokes. So this is now where we enter the shocking part of Jesus' parable. You expect Jesus to say, but an Israelite, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. But he doesn't introduce uh, an Israelite. He introduces a Samaritan who was hated by the Jewish people. The Jewish people loathed the Samaritans. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, around the year 9 AD, so when Jesus is, is a young boy, the Samaritans desecrated the Jerusalem temple by scattering bones in it one night during the Passover, thereby defiling the temple and making it unclean. For the Jews, the word Samaritan became synonymous with unclean, which is quite the opposite from today, is it not? Where good Samaritan is synonymous with somebody who helps others. It was the exact opposite in Jesus' day. To the Jewish people, the only good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. They were half-breeds. Their lineage had the blood of Gentiles mixed in with them, so they were not pure like full-blooded Israelites. And yet this Samaritan is the hero of Jesus' story. Having a heart of compassion, verse 33. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, when he looked at him, he was filled with compassion. And so filled with such compassion... The Samaritan not only tends to the man there on the side of the road, but he goes far beyond that. Not only does he bind up his wounds and apply medicine, which in those days are represented by the oil and wine, but he sets him on his own animal. He takes him to to an inn where he can convalesce, and he pays for the man's hospital bill, so to speak. This Samaritan had compassion on someone who was in bad shape despite the fact that this poor man would have viewed the Samaritan as his enemy. 
Get away from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But it's like the Samaritan thought to himself, I don't care what this person thinks of me. They need help. I can help, so I'm going to help. The priest and the Levite hardened their hearts against one of their own kinsmen, but an enemy had compassion and showed compassion, ignoring those barriers that divided them. Matthew Henry comments, quote, Though he was a Jew, he was a man and a man in misery. The Samaritan knows not how soon this poor man's case may be his own, and therefore pities him, as he himself would desire and expect to be pitied in the like case. End quote. What Henry is saying there is that the Samaritan knows that he could easily find himself in the same situation. He's traveling by himself on the same dangerous road. And if he was in the situation of having been robbed of all that he has and beaten within an inch of his life, he would want somebody to have pity and compassion upon him. And so he has pity and compassion and shows great and abounding mercy to one who is in a poor condition. One time as I was traveling back to college, my car broke down on the side of the interstate, and this was before the days of cell phones. So I started to walk to find the nearest exit so I could uh, find a, a pay phone. Yes, it's back in those days. So I could find a pay phone or find a business that had a phone that would let me borrow it so I could call a tow service. As I was walking, this very nice couple pulled over and offered to drop me off at the next exit, which they did. So I went to the gas station that was right there at the exit to try to use the phone, and the, the lady at the counter looked at me and with a huff begrudgingly said to me, make it quick, that's a business phone, as if somehow my poor condition was going to interfere with their bottom line. I was so thankful that day for that couple who were strangers to me and I to them who stopped to offer a broken-down college student some assistance. Oh, and by the way, the lady who begrudgingly let me use the business phone was white, and this couple who stopped and helped me was African-American. I don't think something like that would happen today because of the racial divide that has been going on and the rhetoric that is coming out. But see, they didn't see me as a white person, as an enemy, somebody to be hated. They saw somebody who in the sweltering heat of Alabama in the summer has broken down and who needs some help. And they helped. They didn't have to. They probably could have used any number of excuses to stop. Plenty of other cars kept on driving by. But they didn't. They were on the interstate themselves. I don't know if they were traveling to home or traveling somewhere else. It delayed them, regardless of where they were going, at least a few minutes. They showed compassion upon me in God's sovereign providence. Now, now that we are in the days of cell phones, it may not be as urgent to pull over and help every stranded motorist, unless you're particularly handy with cars uh, or with changing tires, neither of which I'm very proficient at. Nevertheless, we do need to be ready for action rather than jumping to excuses when we see others in need. For example, trying to save a person you come across who's drowning. I shared this story with you several years ago of some students who came across a man who was drowning in a pond. 
And instead of jumping in to help them, they took out their phones and started videotaping it, uh, recording it, and, and laughing at the poor man. And he died. Rescuing somebody in a burning building. Coming across somebody who's been in a traffic accident. So forth, so on. We never know when we might come across a situation where a person's life is in danger and perhaps your intervention is the difference between life and death. But beyond life and death situations, there are those who are just in general positions of need in a more consistent manner. Those who go to a pregnancy resource center because they find themselves pregnant at a young age, pregnant out of wedlock. Those who find themselves homeless. Those who find themselves addicted to drug, drugs or alcohol. There are people out there who are, stand in more constant need, who need to have an experience mercy and compassion, which we can do, whether it's volunteering at a pregnancy resource center or helping out at a food bank or a homeless shelter or, or working at a place that helps people with drug or alcohol addiction. And the list can go on and on. Those are just some examples. But regardless, we are called to show compassion to those in need regardless of the barriers that divide us, regardless of the barriers that the world and the evil one try to use to divide us. Finally, we see from verses 36 and 37, even one's enemy is one's neighbor. Even one's enemy is one's neighbor. Which of these three, Jesus poses the question to the self-justifying lawyer, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Look at the emphasis of Jesus's question. It's not about the thinking of the Samaritan. The emphasis is on the thinking of the man who fell among the robbers. Who was the neighbor to this man? Who is this man supposed to see as the one who was neighborly to him? So the Jewish man is forced to change his thinking about the Samaritans in light of how he was just treated by one whom he considered to be an enemy. The Jewish man is forced to say, the Samaritan man is not my enemy, he is my neighbor. It's a slap in the face to the self-justifying Jewish lawyer as he's forced to acknowledge who acted neighborly in Jesus' parable. He acknowledges it. He's, he can't even bring himself to, to say the man's ethnicity. He said, the one who showed him mercy. He dare not even speak Samaritan. The one who proved to be a neighbor was the one who showed him mercy. It was one who he had been trained and brought up to believe was an enemy. The Samaritan knows how to show compassion and understands love for the neighbor. Yet here you are, you self-justifying lawyer, asking a question in order to justify your lack of compassion and your lack of love for certain others. According to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, the Jews had been taught, you shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But Jesus tells them in the same passage, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus calls us and he calls his people to go and show mercy to others, even those that we have been trained and are tempted to think of as our enemy. So why don't we go and 
Send missionaries to proclaim the gospel to Muslims. In light of 9-11, it's been commonplace to see all Muslims as enemies of America and enemies of Christianity. But we send missionaries out to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news to our enemies. Jesus says in that same Matthew 5 passage that we are to love our enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. We are to go and show mercy to others, even to those that we think of as our enemies, as well as when we find ourselves in a position of need, we need to be willing to receive help from those who we tend to think of as our enemy. At the end of the day, we try to justify our actions or our inaction based on the fact that we've helped those we love, our friends, but it's okay that we've not helped our enemy. In this case, we are just like the lawyer who is trying to put Jesus to the test based on his own actions. The man knows the summary of the law of God. Love the Lord God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the summary of the two tablets of the law of God. Commandments 1 through 4 and commandments 5 through 10. He knows it, but he tries to justify himself, to think and to pacify himself that I've kept the law. Because we are naturally prone to legalism, just like this lawyer. We can easily fall into the trap of thinking that somehow our actions contribute to our salvation. But Jesus here takes us to the perfect requirements of God's holy law and he holds up that law as a mirror to us and we see revealed to us in God's holy law that, oh, I cannot keep the law of God perfectly. I haven't loved my enemies as a neighbor. I've used excuses to justify not helping somebody in need. And so Jesus turns this thinking upon its head and says this kind of thinking is not to characterize the citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Why? Because Jesus loved us even when we were his enemies. If Jesus had lived and died for those who were his friends, he would have died for nobody because we are all born enemies to God. Romans 5.10 says, quote, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. End quote. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. One parable scholar says this, quote, Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people may feel they have completed their obligation to God. Love does not have a boundary where we can say we have loved enough, nor does it permit us to choose those we will love, those who are, quote-unquote, our kind. Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set. We, just like that, that quote before the confession of sin, if we ever get to that point where we're thinking we've kept and fulfilled one of the laws of God, we are in a very dangerous place.
Craig Blomberg points this out to us when he writes this, quote, if ethnicity or race or religion or any other category of separating one group of humans from another affects our decision as to whether or not to get involved, we have become as hypocritical as the priest and Levite in Jesus' story. Ouch! That steps on our toes, does it not? I have not loved my enemy as a neighbor. This parable challenged this lawyer to put two contradictory words together in his mind, Samaritan and neighbor. Those are worlds apart in the mind of this Jewish lawyer and in the minds of your average ordinary Jew in the days of Jesus. And it challenges you and me to see our enemy not as an enemy, but as a neighbor. And in doing so, it removes any limits on our obligations to help someone in their time of need. The Samaritan, every, every, every person who stopped saw the dead man, but there's only one who truly saw, only one who was truly present, and that was the Samaritan. And Jesus says, Go and do likewise. Daryl Bach, who's a New Testament commentator, writes on this passage saying, quote, One should be a neighbor by showing compassion to anyone in need. Being a neighbor does not make distinctions in offering care. Compassion may involve time and sacrifice. The issue is not to define who the neighbor is or to seek to do the minimum that one can do. This is simply a call to be a neighbor, end quote. So this entire section began with a question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 25. To which Jesus responds with a question of his own. What kind of person are you? Are you a neighbor? Folks, we can only show mercy to others when we know that we have been shown mercy by God in Christ Jesus. We who were spiritually poor, spiritually destitute, stripped naked by Satan, who robbed us of our original righteousness in the fall of our first parents, condemned to die by the holy and perfect law of God, we have been bandaged by the balm of Gilead. We have been brought into the church and the household of God for our convalescence as what was lost to us in the fall, original righteousness and knowledge and holiness is being restored to us through the work of the Holy Spirit applying the completed and finished work of Christ to our lives. We have had great mercy shown upon us. And the, the scriptures go beyond that. It says, lavished richly upon us. Therefore, as recipients of divine mercy, Jesus calls us to go forth and demonstrate mercy and be conduits of mercy to others in need, regardless of whatever may divide us. We're not to be dams. The mercy of God is going to flow to me and then stop. I'm going to block it. Rather, we are to be channels of mercy to others. And so let me encourage all of us here today to think about and to seriously reflect upon 
our commitments and where we can carve out space to go show mercy and be, be a neighbor to others? How can we train ourselves to, to act neighborly in the heat of the moment, in an instant when we see somebody in a dire need? Even people we don't like or care for, even people who don't look like us or talk like us or act like us, even unbelievers demonstrating that we do not have a monopoly upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Let us pray.